the U.S. economy right now is heading over a cliff. Mr. Wakefield's article, The Great Reset, just recently in our Tomorrow's World magazine, that article, he mentioned this. I'm going to read a, a quote. The total sovereign debt of the world's nations is counted to be in excess of $60 trillion, and total U.S. government debt at $27 trillion and rising fast now exceeds its gross domestic product, or its GDP. He says, the world's finances have been at a tipping point for some time, and the COVID-19 crisis has given them a shove. So the world is in bad shape economically, and the U.S. is leading the charge over the cliff, you might say. Here's another quote from a book entitled, Has China Won the Chinese Challenge to American Premacy? I'll read just a, a paragraph here. Similarly, he said, he wrote, rather, Few Americans are aware that the world has changed in many critical dimensions since the heyday of American power in the 1950s. In 1950, in purchasing power parity terms, America had 27.3% of the world's GDP, while China had only 4.5%. At the end of the Cold War in 1990, a triumphant moment, America had 20.6% and China had 3.8%. As of 2019, it has 15%, less than China's at 18.6%. In one crucial respect, America has already become number two. Few Americans are aware of this. Fewer still have considered what it means. And then later he writes, our economy used to be, and he's talking from a Chinese perperspective, He says, the Chinese economy used to be one-tenth the size of that of America. Now it is over 60%. Our country also trades more with the rest of the world than America does. We take up to 10.22% of world, world total imports and a 12.77% of world total exports, compared to the U.S. share of 13.37% of world imports and 8.72% of world exports. Yet when it comes, as he writes, yet as it comes, when it comes to global trade transactions, the reason why America still stands ahead is because the dollar still makes up 41.27% of all transactions, while the Chinese currency makes up 0.98%. So you can see how there's been a dramatic shift in the past couple of decades, and we're poised for more. We thought we knew the way to prosperity, but we don't. But there's a better way. Let's turn to the home front. The American family is heading towards destruction. Dr. Winnale wrote a number of years ago in a Tomorrow's World article titled Marriage and the Family, Vital Institutions in Crisis. I'm going to read what he wrote. He said, we're living in truly momentous times. The historic pillars of Western civilization, biblical religion, marriage, and the family are under siege and crumbling. In the last half of the 20th century, the fundamental building blocks of human society were compromised, corrupted, and rejected at an alarming rate, and the trend is only accelerating. Glenn Stanton, a social research analyst, makes the stunning observation that, quote, the family in the Western world has been radically altered, some claim almost destroyed, by events of the last three decades. 
He states further that the scale of marital breakdowns in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent. There has been nothing like it for the last 2,000 years and probably longer. He then quotes, he's referring again to, the, to Glenn Stanton, that is, Dr. Winnell is, in his article, but he says, he quotes demographer Kingsley Davis's lament that at no time in history, with the possible exception of imperial Rome, has the institution of marriage been more problematic than today. Stanton, Stanton concludes that of all the social problems facing American civilization, the decline of marriage and the breakup of the family is unquestionably our most pressing problem. It is the common denominator driving other social ills. We thought in America that we had the answers to men and women living in peace and in harmony with good families, raising good kids, but the fruit is rotten, and there is a better way. As we, as a nation, have proceeded down our path, we have thought we knew and we know how to do religion. By enshrining toleration for all religions, which is a principle and one way that has protected us in, in God's church, we recognize that, but by enshrining tolerance for all religions as part of the, the value base for our nation, we thought that we would create a, an equitable, a fair, and a peaceful community. The reality is that we've sown confusion. We've become a, a godless, morally bankrupt people. But, again, there's a better way. There's a better way to run a country. There's a better way to run an economy. There's a better way to build families. And there's a better way to live as a follower of Christ. But for us, are we willing to give up our freedom and turn to God as a nation? For us, as citizens of this nation, are we willing to accept the fact that we don't know how to do family in our land anymore? And more specifically for us, as members of God's church, are we willing to look at ourselves in the mirror and, and ask the difficult question about where we stand personally as a follower of Christ? See, a better way than the way that is natural, the way that we are soaked in, uh, the way our culture works around us, a better way has been offered to mankind throughout the history of his family, yet he has never been willing to follow that better way. I'd like to focus on that better way today, and if I succeed, you'll be more determined than ever to live the better way of God. But understand, this way has been offered to mankind through the history of his family, and yet he has been unwilling to accept that better way. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 to begin. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the early days of the family of man. And as we come to the end of chapter 3, after the episode when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and entice them into disobeying God and taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We read in chapter 3, verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed carabim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, Adam and Eve did not want God's way, and so God said, fine, 
you'll live with the consequences. In other words, you can't choose death and receive life. See, that's what God's way is, life. We read in John chapter 10, let's flip quickly to John chapter 10, and we read this fundamental statement about God's way when Christ speaks to what he is. He describes himself And he says, verse 10, the thief does not come then except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then he says, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You see, Christ, God, is all about life. It's about life, giving life, real life, the way of life. Let's go back to Genesis and let's continue the story of man in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And we see this verbiage upon which we're focusing today about a way. We see Genesis chapter 6, verse uh, 9, 10, 11. We read verse 11, the earth also, now we're reading about the time of Noah, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And look what we read in verse 12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Man's way corrupts. Man's way breaks down. It's like, it's like rust where metal is oxidized until nothing is left. Uh, A number of years ago, my, um, my, my father-in-law gave us a, a truck. He had a, an old truck and, uh, my, one of my sons was unable to use this truck. Uh, unfortunately, as time went by, as is the case with uh, vehicles up in the north, when you have salt and, uh, and other chemicals on the road that are used to melt the snow, you tend to have a lot of rust on the undercarriage of your vehicles. And so uh, at one point, my son said, something's wrong with this truck. It's, uh, it seems like it's riding funny. It's riding very, very rough, and we've got problems. And so he took it into the shop. And uh, the guy looked at it, and he was about to put it up on the lift, and he said, look, he said, if I put it on the, up on the lift, the whole thing's not going to go up because the way the, the springs had, had been corroded in the back, he said, I may lift the frame, but the wheels are going to stay on the ground. So we have a problem here. I can't work with this. It was so rusted out that he couldn't even begin to repair the, because there was nothing to repair, and that's the way that rust works. So... As we begin to go through the scriptures, then we, we see a contrast that is established between man's way and God's way. Two ways. The way of man is selfish. It's my way. It's my wants. It's demanding. It's about get. It's about the physical, which ultimately is corruptible, isn't it? It's about, you might say, entropy, the, 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 the law that dictates that all physical things move towards chaos and break down. That's the way the physical is. On the other hand, we have the way of God. The way of God adds life. Literally, spiritually, when one is baptized, what happens? They receive God's spirit. They receive eternal life. Ultimately, when our fleshly body dies and is finished, we will receive more life. You might say real life because it's eternal. It's more real than the real that we know. God's way adds life, spiritually speaking, and in reality. God's way strengthens, it perpetuates, it builds 
without side effects. And it gives as opposed to taking away. So we have this contrast between the way of man and the way of God. Now, I said at the beginning that mankind has been unwilling to take the better way, which, by the way, if you uh, want to write down the title, this would be it, the better way, the better way. But I should clarify, though, because I, I, I said mankind, but I should clarify because I really should say most of mankind. Because God has called some, he has opened their eyes, he's offered them, he's revealed to them a better way. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 18 and read chapter 18 and verse 16, where we read how the men rose from there, verse 16. This is Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16. The men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, so this is this was the one who became the Word, Jesus Christ, or one who was the Word, Jesus Christ. He said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And verse 19, then the, the focus verse here, where we read verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So what God was teaching Abraham, what he intended Abraham to teach his children was a way, not just a specific finite do's and don'ts, but a way. Abraham's mandate from God was to teach his children a way. And this really still reflects the goal for our children, doesn't it? As we have little babies and they begin to grow, our desire is not just to teach rules, but a way, a way of thinking. It's not what you can't do, but it's how you do what you can do. You know, for parents, it's not, no, you can't play basketball, you can't wrestle, you can't be on the swim team because we have a Sabbath rule and you might have a problem participating. No, it's not that. Instead, it's, yes, play basketball, play play uh, tennis or swim, play in the band. Be the hardest working, most cooperative, extra effort kid on the court, in the pool or in the band room. That's the way that they are supposed to, we're supposed to teach them. You know, God's way guides us what to do with our might for six days a week. The fact that we keep the Sabbath is just a given. It's, it's part of us that the coach can either accept and work with or not. Which means, in that case, you have to find a different sport or activity or instrument in which to excel. I mean, isn't that the story of, of Daniel? We read for the first few chapters of Daniel. We read about young men who they excelled in the area in which they were able to excel. And, and when there was a limitation, they said, we won't do this, but we will do this. And they excelled in what was under their hand within their abilities. And, and, and yes, you know, the other kids on the team should end up saying, that's just the way he is, or that's just the way she is. They don't go to meets on Friday nights or Saturday. But yes, on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, they swim or they play their hardest, and they won't let the team down. That's just the way 
they are. There should be a way that our kids uh, reflect that others around them notice. You know, and the other kids on the team should end up saying, oh, yes, when the coach is talking, they don't talk back like other ones. That's just the way they are. Or the other kids should end up saying, yes, they don't make fun of other people around them. They don't laugh at other people when they fall down or when they mess up, when they make a mistake. So in other words, our our kids, and I, I'm using now children as an example because this is what we're reading about when we read about Abraham. It wasn't simply just rules and regulations. God was saying, I'm going to teach him a way, a way of thinking that others will notice. It's it's proactive, not passive. And so we have the same opportunity with or with our children. Let's go to Genesis 24. See, this is what God was talking about with Abraham, the way of the Lord, to do righteousness, to do justice and goodness and fairness and kindness. And look at the influence that emanates or that radiates from a man who is determined to keep and teach God's way. Genesis 24, this same man, Abraham, Genesis 24, and verse 42. Well, I'm going to break into the whole story here of the uh, the quest for a bride for Isaac and... Let's see here. Verse, let's begin in verse 41. What I want to highlight here, something that was said by Abraham's servant. Well, let's, let's go to verse 42. As he's telling the story, he says, And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebekah coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and the, she gave the camels a drink also. And then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcha bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And look, verse 48 then, we find this, this emphasis on way, which we just read a, a few verses ago, but look at verse 47 then. Then I asked her and said, or rather verse 48, and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord, and I blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. So we see an acknowledgement here that that Abraham's example of looking to the way of God, so much so that even his activities in terms of choosing a bride for his son had influenced now his servant to look to God to, to guide him in the way that he should proceed in this project. So when we're determined to follow God, he directs our path in, in truth, and the right stuff happens. Now, this brings us to Abraham's descendants and, and how integral this truth is to these days of unleavened bread. Let's go to Exodus chapter 13. You see, because the Israelites weren't just learning how to remove leaven from their homes. 
That wasn't the, that wasn't the purpose of this whole exercise. God didn't say, you know what's really important to me is that the Israelites learn how to ensure that they remove leaven from their homes and don't have leaven. That's what this is all about. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It was a mechanism. It was a mechanism to help them learn a way. A way. And we find that this emphasis, as God begins to work with the descendants of Abraham, hundreds of thousands of people, this emphasis is borne out. He established the same principle of a teaching of a way. Here we see Exodus chapter 13. And verse 17, now we've, we focused, uh, up to this point over these days and over the, particularly over Passover and the first day of unleavened bread on Exodus 12 and in, in particular with the Passover. But as we come to their departure, we read verse 17. Then it came, this is of chapter 13 again. It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. You can't help but read, as you read this, but think of our own lives. Because... You have to wonder then, what is God leading me around or away from because he knows that I am not up to that challenge, up to that trial? It doesn't mean the other way that he's taking us is not full of challenges. We we certainly see that from their path through the wilderness. But he knows what we're up to. He knows the trial that we can endure. And he doesn't set before us a trial that's too great for us. We, we learned that in the New Testament. But you can't, you can't read this and not think how that applies to us today. Think about right now. What is it in your life that you're facing that instead of thinking, oh, this is, I can't believe I'm having to go through this, instead perhaps think, you know, what is God, why is God taking me this way or allowing this to happen? And what is he protecting me from or directing me away from, per, perhaps? And uh, anyway, this is what God certainly was doing with the Israelites, as he states clearly. And it's not always clear why. It's not always clear why for us, why we're going through a particular challenge. It's not always clear why, but the where was clear for the Israelites, and the where is ultimately clear for us, isn't it? Because we, we know where we're going. We know the end of the story. That we can rely upon. Verse Verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. So for us in our daily lives, even though we may face challenges that are, that are, are difficult, that put us in positions that are awkward, that are challenging, we oftentimes have the answer in front of us when the boss demands that we work on Friday nights and work or work into the Sabbath. We know what's supposed to happen. Exodus chapter 20, we read very clearly that we're not to break the Sabbath. The answer is clear. The way is clear, even though we may not like the ramifications and the challenges along the way. How about when another person speaks offensively to us? 
and we're, we're offended and we're hurt by their rudeness or by what they say that's offensive. What are, what are we to do? What is the way? Well, we have a very clear instruction, don't we, in the New Testament. When Christ tells us, we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, to turn the other cheek. To As he, he, as he says, I'll quote the scripture, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, don't be quick to retaliate. Our way should be one in which we are not constantly on the edge of retaliation. Instead, we're willing to absorb a little bit of the of the shortcomings of other people. That's what it's talking about. That's the way. That's the way. How about when a situation is not clear in terms of what we are to do in some type of decision? Well, we read in Psalm 37, verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Psalm 37 is about being willing to wait, even though it seems perhaps we are being treated unjustly, or, or as a principle, as an overall premise, the idea that we should be willing to wait for God to show us what to do, or open a door for us, maybe a window, but at least give us guidance. There are times that we are to wait Patiently. Well, there's an instruction about a way of thinking. Now, it may not be specific to our exact situation, but remember, God's, God's way is eternal. God's way is not contingent upon a specific time or place. God's way is about principles, about ways of thinking that are for all time. And so, when we accept it that way, when we think about it in that way, then it applies to us, and, and we, we can begin to see uh, how, to, how to think in terms of the mind of God. Let's go along with the story here, Exodus chapter 18, as we read more about this, this, this concept of a way. We read about Abraham, now we're reading about Israel, Genesis, or rather Exodus chapter 18, and we read verse, verse 20. Verse 20 is the key verse. Uh, the prep, the introduction has to do with Moses judging the people and how it was just too much because there were too many uh, different issues that had to be settled. And so Moses' father-in-law in verse 14 saw that all that he did for the people and he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? In other words, why are you having to do, carry this burden yourself? But there was another another premise that was part of what he was saying let's read a little bit further and moses said to his father-in-law because the people come to me to inquire of god when they have a difficulty they come to me and i judge between one and another and i make known the statutes of god and his laws verse 17 so moses father-in-law said to him the thing that you do is not good both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out he said for this thing is too much for you uh, you are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may be, bring the difficulties to God. And he says, verse 20, And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. 
In other words, it was important to teach them the laws and the statutes in order for them to see the mind of God, the thinking that was behind the particulars of the of that decision, so that ultimately they would be able to recognize recognize even before they came to Moses or one of the other judges that was established, they would already recognize what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to handle the situation. <clears throat> For those of you that have children, you know exactly what this talk is talking about, don't you? Because after a time goes by, you know that your kids know what you're going to say in a given situation, and so what do they do? They may try you a little bit. They may come to you and say, well, Papa, Mama, can we do this? And you say, no. They say, I knew you were going to say that because they already know the answer because you've been consistent in this type of scenario that they're not going to be allowed to do this type of thing, or maybe they are. What you're trying to teach them is to understand a way of thinking beyond just every little rule about what to do or not to do. And this is the point that was being made here. The Israelites were to learn a way. Exodus 23. Let's flip forward a couple a couple more chapters. Exodus 23 and and verse 20. Behold here he's this is on the heels of the the teaching about Sabbaths and the feast days. And he says, I'm going to give you guidance in a way. He says, I will send, uh, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So God, uh, he assured them that he would direct them in the path they should go. This had double meaning, didn't it? It had, it had meaning geographically, but it also had meaning in terms of the, the way they should think as he established a constitution for their life as a nation and as individuals. He gave them a law, as he describes in Deuteronomy, that would be the envy of the nations around because it was a way that worked, not a way that brought national moral bankruptcy. It was a way that worked. It was a system that worked economically in terms of legal and property rights, in terms of social rights. In terms of the public good, it was a way that brought peace and prosperity. So, yes, he would geographically bring them to the place through by a way, but he was also teaching them a way as well. Exodus 32. Sadly, in their case, they were unwilling to follow that way. Exodus 32 and verse 8, the the uh, the story of the golden calf and what happened it didn't take long for them to turn away from from God and we read how it's enunciated in terms of a way Exodus 32 and verse 7 the lord said to moses go get down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of egypt have corrupted themselves god sort of disavowed them at this point. He said, "These I don't want to have anything to do with them. It's like, uh, you know, when, when Johnny does wrong and um, mommy says to him, Johnny, I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know why you're doing this and is upset. And then she goes and speaks to Papa and, pa- and she says, your son Johnny did such and such. 
And that's the way it happens sometimes. We're, we don't, we don't want to accept responsibility. It's your kid, not mine. And this is what God was saying to Moses in a sense. He's saying, the ones who, who you have brought out, they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. And look at how this, this phrase is used again. Verse eight, out of the way which I commanded them. So it emphasizes God's desire, God's intent to teach them more than a legalistic system which would simply dictate exactly how each and every action was to take place, but instead teach a way of thinking, a way of <clears throat> of building the synapses, as you might say, in our brains so we become habituated in in, in, a, in a way of doing things and thinking things that will be repeated and will become actually become very comfortable and uh, will become confident in that in that way of approaching things, whether it's a Sabbath or a holy days or or tithing or giving an offering of the holy days as we're as we did today, or any aspect of the way we treat our neighbor, the way we look towards our government, the way and the list goes on, doesn't it? It encompasses our thinking uh, throughout the day. Exodus 33, just flip over another chapter here. Exodus 33, here when he, when, when Moses asked God to continue to go with, with them and to be merciful, he says in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And then he says, okay, fine, my presence will go with you. The point that I want to make here today is simply this this idea, this this principle of God referring to it as a way being reiterated again and again and again. So let's recap. Let's recap. God offered his way to mankind. Mankind turned his back and went a different way, a way that led to the destruction or leads to the destruction of humanity. And as God began to work with a man, Abraham in, in this case, we, we uh, analyzed that for a moment. He said, here's the deal. My expectation of you is that you walk in my way and you teach your children to do the same. When he called then, that is when God called the nation that had been born from Abraham and Sarah, God reiterated, this is the way, geographically and in regard to their conduct. And he taught them. He gave them all kinds of examples of how his way works. Joshua chapter 1 this brings us up to Joshua chapter 1. And as he began to work with Joshua to lead the people, he says in verse 8, I'm breaking into this, this, uh, this, this section here, but I want to go directly to the point. This book of the law, Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God 
In a sense, he, he teaches to the standard. He teaches the best way. And then when he works with us, you might say that he tests for competency. This is a principle in, in lifeguarding instruction. You teach the standard. What is the, what's the right way of doing things? You don't teach the exceptions. You teach the right way of doing things exactly, perfectly. But in terms of executing a, a, a lifeguarding save, you, you, you want to, to, to train, you want to rather test as to whether the lifeguard can actually carry out the save and the person is still alive and on the side of the pool. And which means they're going to have to employ a lot of what have, they have been taught. But the situation will constantly change. And isn't that the way it is with our, with our life? God teaches us. He's very, he's unequivocal in his principles and what they're all about. But he recognizes that as he works with us, we're faced with challenges that are new to us all the time. And so sometimes we do better, sometimes we don't do so well, but he keeps working with us so our competency can improve. And, and that's the way that God worked with, with Israel. It's the way he works with us. But he warned them that a different way would be offered. Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy 13 and verse 5. He says, for example, he says, but that prophet's talking about those who would come and, and try to deceive Israel, those who would arise out of them. He says, verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice. But verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, and it's referring to a prophet that's enunciated in verses 2 and verses 3. But he says, Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so shall you put away the evil from your midst. So just like Israel, we have to recognize that that there will be other ways that are put in front of us to entice us. Deuteronomy 31 speaks of the same thing. And and we are we are confronted with different ways of thinking all the time, aren't we? And and we have to then make a choice because God doesn't force us to live a better way. He gives us clearly the signs, the instructions about what that better way is. And he is unequivocal in the fact that it is a better way, and it's the only way to true success. But he doesn't remove these, the other way, a way that is not good. He doesn't re- remove that out of the picture, because otherwise we would not have to choose to develop and build a character that is built through free moral agency. So it's, and what he does say is, you know, if you go that way, this other way, there are going to be problems. It's a detour. It's going to lead to heartache. It's going to lead to, to, uh, to mistakes that will scar you. It's going to lead to a wrong way of thinking that will hang with you and be part of your mind and hang around and, and bother you and entice you and frustrate you. He says, no, no, this is the way. Walk in it. God's way is the best. It's not just one of the the alternate options, it is the best and the only way to true success. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 15 and chapter 16, 
And 2 Kings 16 and chapter 21, if you want to jot those uh, those references down, you see that for Israel, God's warnings went unheeded. And you read about this king or that king who walked in the way of King Jeroboam. And so we find different kings who are who, who actually have their name attached to an evil way that leads Israel and lead Judah down a path to destruction. And it's really, it's a sad repeat of Genesis chapter 3. But the Bible story is not over as we go towards the latter half of the book. These things were written as examples for us. And the New Testament begins with a better way. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We read verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he brings this prophecy forward, and he stamps on the New Testament, the, the, the ministry of Christ, and we see this this theme continues path, past Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection, this concept of a way. In this case, prepare the way of the Lord. What is to happen as he fulfills his role? And as Christ begins his ministry, where is his focus? Let's go to just a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, as he begins to preach and teach and explain to people how they should think how they should function. He says, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. This is Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So he, he begins to focus and talk about this, this way of life as he, as he preaches. Matthew 22. A few chapters forward. Matthew 22. They recognized, his hearers recognized that he taught a way, and it was a way that was different from the way of the Pharisees. Matthew 22 and verse 15. Then the, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And verse 16. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying... Verse 16, remember the Herodians were uh, were anxious to catch him speaking treasonous words. So they were trying to establish, a, set a trap for him here. Verse 16, they sent to him their dis- disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. And then he, they give this this uh, this example here or this difficult uh, challenging to them challenging situation but but they recognized that he he taught a way and that they had to acknowledge it was the way of truth and it was different from the way of the pharisees let's go to uh, mark chapter 7 it was different from what they were all about mark chapter 7 you see they washed and they had specific uh, fence, you might say, fences around the law in special ways that identified them. 
They had a way of doing things, and it was very precise. You read about that here in the first few verses of chapter 7 of Mark. Well, verse 4, it says, well, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So there were, there was this whole system that was their way. It's in a, in a way, it's like, I'll say, quote, religious people today. You know them, don't you? Because they wear a necklace with a cross. They have a bump, perhaps they have a bumper sticker that has a, you know, a fish on it or, some other slogan that when you, when you read that, you say, oh, that's a, quote, Christian. Why? It's because they've got the accoutrements. They've got the Jesus T-shirt. Um, they've got all these accoutrements that are about a way. And you know it. You recognize it. People recognize it. Sometimes when you say, and maybe with other employees at, at work, at workplace or friends or or what have you, you're, you're interacting with people, and they learn that you're very serious about the Bible and living by the Bible, and they say, might say to you, you're not like a regular Christian. You don't, I didn't, you don't seem to be Christian like most Christians. What are they saying? They're saying, they're recognizing that you have a way of living that reflects whatever it might be that they're seeing. You're not stealing, you're not cussing every other word and you don't work on the sabbath and whatever it might be you don't pull out a you know maybe a ham sandwich or what what, some way it's come to their attention that you have a way of living but it's not the way that is full of all the accoutrements and all the show that is recognized as being quote christian today or religious today people they have a way and you know it and i do but it's it's a different way than Christ taught and the way that we that we live. John chapter 14. It's about the uh, all the accoutrements and the and the outward show. John chapter 14. As Christ prepared his disciples to assume their role as teachers, what did he say? Well, he focused on a way, didn't he? John chapter 14. And he said, we're I'm going to jump down to verse uh, verse 4. He says, Wherever I go and the way you know. Well, let's back up. Let's read the whole section. Verse 1. Let your heart not be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled, rather. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. So he begins to focus, or he continues, I should say, more accurately, on this concept of a way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ prepared them to, to, to grasp this, this, this verbiage of a way of thinking and a way of even speaking about the things of God, the, the, the teachings of Christ. And as we see 
the New Testament continue in the book of Acts, as the New Testament church is established, we see that the things that they taught became even by others known as the way. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, And verse 1, then Saul, who became Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see how the teachings of Christ, the keeping of the law, but with an understanding that was inspired by Christ, not by the Pharisees or the traditions of the fathers, we see that was beginning to be labeled as the way, the way of Christ, the way of these believers who began to live and teach this principle, this way of thinking, this way of living, this way of treating their neighbor, this way of acting, the people of the way. Now, this, I think, also prompts or should prompt a thought in us as well, because we should ask ourselves, are we known as people of the way? Is there a way that identifies us that that what we do and, and say is reflecting the things of the Bible? Is that the way that describes us? Is that the way in which we're known? Because if they were people of the way, then we should be too. That is that first century apostolic era, however we wish to describe it, Christianity, the Christianity of Christ, the followership of Christ. Flip over a few chapters as we continue our our trek through the Bible. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 now. We read a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he became then part of the way. He began to reflect the way that they were, that was being taught by Paul and and others of this time. Uh, Acts chapter 19, just one chapter over, we see how the way is spoken of in a, in a negative way. Acts chapter nine, uh, 19, rather. <clears throat> we see how Paul, how Paul is here at Ephesus, and this challenge uh, is made, verse 3, he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism, and he describes what, that, what that's all about. But look what happens here, then verse uh, 9. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This reminds me so much of what's happened over the years, where people who who should know better begin to talk evil of the way. People who enjoyed, frankly, the, the harmonious, uh, fellowship within God's church over the years. People enjoyed the teaching and enjoyed the instruction, whether in Ambassador College or in different congregations, but were, were, were happy and were, seemed to be fully engaged in the way. And then as time goes by, 
for one reason or another, they turn and go a different direction, but then they begin to speak evil of the way. That at the, at the time when they were part of the way, they were very positive about it. And so today we have to deal with that where those who speak evil of the way. We don't get into fights with them and we don't go back and forth on you know, Facebook, social media, or, or even in any way. It's not, it's just, it, it doesn't, there's no benefit to getting into debating and arguments with, arguments with someone who has, who's antagonistic towards the way in which we believe. There's no, nothing to be gained from it. But we do see that it's not a new thing. There are people who are going to be antagonistic toward the things that we believe, who were even, at one point, were supportive. And you would have thought part of the part of the family. It's not a new thing. A couple other, one of the verse, uh, rather in Acts anyway. Acts chapter twenty-four, where we see Acts twenty-four and verse fourteen. This phrase used again. He said, "This is as Paul was uh, defending the way before Felix." He said, I confess to you then, verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He specifically refers to it as as the way. Now, if you want to do a bit of a, a word search on way and see how it's used throughout the rest of the New Testament is really an interesting thing. Because, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, Paul says, run in such a way that you may, and then he goes on to describe this way in which we live. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we read about a way of escape. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we read a, a more excellent way, as Paul refers to it. So there are other, there are other, there's other places where this, this phrase is used that helps flesh out the whole, the meaning of the way in which we, we live. And it's, it's worthwhile doing a study, simply going through a concordance and looking up the word way and look at all the scriptures that were, that, that actually include it. And I think you'll, you'll benefit from it. It's, it's well worth doing. Hebrews chapter 10, let's flip forward to Hebrews though, Hebrews chapter 10, because here in the book of Hebrews we we have this this laying of a a fundamental groundwork you might say in 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 this epistle of a way of thinking, a way of life. And, and he, he ties it in the, the New Testament church and our way of thinking. He ties it back to the Israelites, to the Sabbath, to Jesus Christ, to, and, and to, um, so much of the, of the fabric of the Old Testament. And as part of that, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, he refers to this, this way. And here he calls it Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 20, a new and living way. Let's read verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near them with a true heart. He speaks of the things of the heart. So our very nature, our mind, our thoughts, our, 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 our emotions, 
our convictions are bound up in this way that is full of faith, that is is actually even, it has to do with our conscience, that we can even have our conscience healed and, and changed, you might say, by God through repentance and through the sacrifice of Christ. And, and so he, he establishes even with great, uh, you might say, different facets, how we approach this way. And so he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us stir one another in order to stir up, or rather consider one another to stir up love and good works. Because that's what it's all about. There's no, does, how does that apply to a specific statute or judgment? Well, it, it's the sense. It's the understanding of loving your neighbor, which all the statutes and judgments apply to, rather either loving God or loving neighbor. And so he, he says this is the way we implement that, by actually gathering together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, caring for one another, recognizing that we are our brother's keeper, that our, our neighbor should be important to us, particularly those who are bound by the blood of Jesus Christ exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, which is going to be that much more difficult as the society around us begins to shred, as the the culture around us begins to, to separate us, and we break apart into slivers and contentious elements that we can't have that within the church. We have to, so much more as the day of Christ's return approaches, we have to be able to associate ourselves first and foremost with the way of God, not a way of this ethnic group, a way of this political group, a way of one element or another in our society. No, we have to associate ourselves. We have to, we have to feel like we are, are, are part and parcel first and foremost and completely in this way, among people of this way. And we have a record in Hebrews of those who have gone before us that actually reflect our, our brethren. Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Hebrews chapter 12 and We're going to read a good bit of this. Verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, applying to to the days of unleavened bread, where we recognize through these days, we focus on sin, but it's not just about the sin, it's it's about living in a way that is good, not just recognizing bad. It's about living and not just removing the sin from our lives, but actually changing the way that we think. And that takes a proactive approach. That takes action. That takes effort. It takes, it takes energy because it takes energy to reach out to our brethren. It takes energy to hold our, our tongue when we're offended. It takes energy and it takes the Spirit of God. And so that's what we're all about, not just simply recognizing that it's wrong to gossip, not simply just recognizing that it's wrong to speak evil of our neighbor, but actually having, through God's Spirit, the strength to say something that's positive rather than something that's negative and, and tears down. So he says, we, we lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. It's not just about today, it's about tomorrow. 
And sometimes it literally is just simply dealing with the day because yesterday was a really rough one. Yesterday we fell down, and it's all about getting up today and doing it one more time. And we have to do that again and again and again. And if we can only get up, ask God for strength, ask God to help us to do better than yesterday, if we can continue doing that day by day, we'll make it. And we'll, we'll also create that momentum, which, which we need. He says, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes on and he talks. Well, I'm going to jump down to verse, verse 18. Verses 12 and 13 and 14, fr- frankly, reflect exactly what I was emphasizing a moment ago about our, 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 the import for us to be proactive and to, to, to put energy, spiritual energy into our relationships with others and God as opposed to falling prey to a lackadaisical, passive, whatever type attitude. You know, isn't that the key word of today, the value of today? You might say it's the, it's the, it is the, the theme or the watchword of the Laodicean era. Whatever. Are we whatever people? We shouldn't be. We should be very clear on what is and what should be. And that should drive us what should be, not whatever. And so he says, uh, verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken them to, to them anymore. Don't tell us. We, we, we're, that's enough. We don't want to be any closer to God, in, in essence, is, is what they were saying. And, and it reflected. He said, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But he says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all the spirit, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We have a legacy of those who have died in the faith. People who we can easily forget, but through these times we read about here in the Bible, but also as as we think back or as we listen to others, and we should. We should listen to the stories and the examples of those who have come before. We get so caught up in our daily life and our challenges that we, we, we can't, we have very little time for the legacy of those who have gone before, even just in a few generations from, from today, who are people who have sacrificed and people who have stayed loyal to, to God and to His church through the end of their life, who have died and, and so easily are forgotten. We have a legacy of people like that. Let's remember them. Let's think about them. Let's tell stories and listen to the stories, for those of us that are younger, of those people. Because they they lived the way, and they died in the way. They faced their own challenges and trials and persecution, sometimes losing friends and being ridiculed. 
and, and all in defense of a better way. Are we carrying that legacy forward, brethren? We should. We should. Second Chronicles chapter six. Second Chronicles chapter six. We read here about a prayer. Oh, let's, let's go ahead and go there. Second Chronicles. We read of Solomon's prayer for his nation. And, and really we can accept, we can transfer this, we can recognize this applies to us as well. Second Chronicles chapter six, verse 26. I'll break into the prayer here. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. He says, Verse 28, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Now, God's way is not just rules and regulations that are only applicable to one place and one time. Our land today, if our land, if our people, if we as a nation, and I will say the nations of Ephraim, Manasseh, the Israelitish nations who came from this, these, these generations, these people would pray to their God and say, God, we don't know why things are coming unglued, but we want to look to you for answers. Teach us your ways. We're not demanding our own, but we want to know your way. If we would do that as a, as a nation, instead of defying God's ways, by by casting doubt and aspersions and disrespect and dishonor on his laws and his ways. I, I should say his, his principles and his judgments and, and his statutes that are all reflection of reflections of his way. If we would instead look to those as a nation, try to seek out understanding about those specifics of his way, then we have to believe that God would turn and would hear us as a people. And God's ways, again, I say, are relevant across the centuries of human existence. They are relevant. They're relevant today just as they were when they were uttered at Mount Sinai. Now, for us, within God's church, we don't have to wait for an opportunity to practice a better way, do we? We can do it now. We can do it today. We can do it this week. If we do, we then may avoid the fate of some of those, even within the 
the church of God, even those who are followers of the true God, who, as we read in Revelation chapter 12, will be allowed to suffer persecution because they're not willing to follow the way that God establishes for those who are protected. No, we we need to do everything that we can within our power to, to look to God, to ask Him to show us His way today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. This is all important as a, a, a lesson that comes out of the days of unleavened bread and, and applies to us throughout the year because ultimately our destiny is to teach this way to our brethren in the human family in the future. Isaiah chapter 30. Let's read this scripture, which we often read at the Feast of Tabernacles. But really, it's the capstone of this whole theme of a way, isn't it? We read verse verse 20. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, it's talking about God's, God's gracious mercy in the, in the days when His Son, Jesus Christ, is ruling over this earth, you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though, verse, I'm sorry, I was reading a little bit of verse uh, 19, but verse 20, Though the bread, Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Verse 21, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Our job today, the, the core of our existence, is to learn and build the character through God's Holy Spirit so we can, when the time comes, we can help our elder brother, Jesus Christ, usher in the dawning of a new world, a time in which mankind learns a better way.